0: is how we have come to know love he laid down his life for us we should also lay down our lives for our brothers if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to his need how can God's love reside in him little children We must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. This is how we will know we belong to the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. Even if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, We have confidence before God and can receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he commanded us.
1: song that points us to the amazing grace of god amen amen let's let's pray thank you lord thank you lord for the gift of this moment the gift of today thank you for the gift of your grace we we stand in awe of your amazing grace Lord, thank you for how Your grace has saved us and how Your grace is transforming us, and uh, thank you for how Your grace will will lead us safely home, and uh, thank you that we can gather together here for worship. And as we now look to Your Word, we pray for Your grace to empower us as we come to Your Word. Uh, help us see Jesus. We want to see You, Lord Jesus, today in a fresh and a new way through Your Word. We thank You you when we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's real good to be together. If you're new visiting with us today, we're especially glad to have you with us. My name is Russell, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Philpott Church, and it is a joy to uh, to welcome you. Thanks, worship team, for Jesse, for leading us today in, in worship you know, every church has a unique story, and our our particular story traces back more than a hundred and twenty five years. Now, who was here uh, back then, Larry? You're shaking your head. I'm not sure if I believe you, but uh, we can check your birth certificate after, I guess. Yes, to the late uh, to the late eighteen hundreds, and to a man named peter philpot philpot's father died when he was just 6 years old the family would move his mom would go on to remarry and uh, a machinist who ran a small blacksmith shop a, a metal shop and then later as a teenager uh, philpot would apprentice as a metal worker but when the factory that Philpott worked at closed down, it led to a, a difficult time in this young man's life. He, he struggled to find any kind of meaningful employment, and he seemed to be crippled by this uh, a lack of direction and a, and a lack of any sense of ambition for his future. That all changed when a young Philpot happened to come upon a street church meeting held by two Salvation Army women. And at that meeting, Philpot talks about seeing this vision of Jesus. He was, he was moved by Jesus' death on the cross and the realization that Jesus died for his sins. Philpot was a changed man, new energy and new focus and almost overnight, Philpot became an evangelist preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ on the streets of Hamilton at every opportunity he became known by some as the blacksmith preacher and Philpot committed himself to preaching a simple gospel that He wanted to be accessible to everyone. Now, this was not only the beginning of our church, but also planted the seeds for what would become a family. Of churches, a a new association of churches, if you will, what is now known as the Associated Gospel Churches, the AGC, with uh, more than 150 churches now who are a part of this this family, this association. Uh, I want to welcome this morning uh, Tom Lamshed, who's a regional director with the AGC, sitting over here in the front row, and also then Bill Allen, who serves as the president of the AGC. It's a a pleasure to welcome you folk to our our church today. And uh, they're here for a bit of a special reason, and that is for an induction service. Now, an induction service is intended to mark... The, and, and celebrate the commencement of a new ministry. And it's a reminder that ministry is a calling, it's a commitment, and it's a partnership. And so, in just a few moments, whenever it is I finish preaching, and as you know, who knows when that's going to be. But, but, but whenever I decide to stop preaching, uh, Tom is going to come and, and lead in this induction Induction service. You know, recently I had my number changed. I finally gave up my Newfoundland number. Now I'm being inducted, so I might be staying. So, you know, who knows? There's one step after after the other. So they're going to come in just a few moments. I also want us to consider the story of another church this morning. It's a story that we've been looking at before the Christmas break, and we're returning to our journey through the book of Philippians, and a Philippian was a person who lived in the ancient city of Philippi, and we have in our Bible an early Christian letter that was written to a church in this city. The story of this church is rooted in the extraordinary power and leading of God, and central to this story is a man by the name of the Apostle Paul, and. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was, is, was an important person in the history of Christianity. Paul was born a Roman citizen, to Jewish parents. He became a Pharisee. Pharisees were a respected Jewish group known for their very meticulous interpretation of Jewish teaching. He was also known as a strong opponent to Christianity. Well, the Apostle Paul experienced a dramatic conversion to Christianity, and he would become a church-planning missionary, and it was, it was through a vision that, that Paul was prompted to travel to the city of Philippi, and from the seeds of three distinct conversions, a church was born. And so I invite you to turn with me in, uh, in your Bible to the book of Philippians, this letter it's probably around ten years later, and Paul is writing a letter to the church that he helped start. A church he has deep partnership with. This is a church he loved deeply. He refers to this people uh, in terms of my joy and my crown. It appears that this church has grown. If you note in the, in the opening greeting of the letter that Paul begins by greeting all the saints who are at Philippi and he has special mention uh, of the overseers and the deacons. And so there seems to be this, this emerging church structure that is the result, no doubt, of, of, of growth and development. And Paul, Paul begins his letter in a posture of remembering. Remembering his time with them. He's reflecting upon their gospel partnership. And and his remembering stirs joy. And it stirs thanksgiving and prayer. Which leads to this central instruction in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, I think Paul is saying, live in a way that makes the good news about Jesus big. Live in a way that makes Jesus glorious. Live in a way that shows that what you believe about Jesus is of greatest worth. And so Paul is suggesting that making the gospel big in Philippi is grounded in actions and attitudes that exist within the church. And at the heart of Paul's instruction is the need for unity and humility. We prayed about this on, on Wednesday night of this week. We prayed for, for unity amid diversity Look at what Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I think... Many of us would be quick to admit that that's not often our default mode. You know, we don't often default to when we're in situations about trying to figure out how this is going to impact the other. Often, our default is, "Well, what's in this for me?" You know, how how is this going to better me and? My family and those in my closest circle. And so we don't often default to this way of thinking, this, 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 this concern for the other. And you know, as we as we read Paul here as he opens the letter, we're kind of left guessing what exactly is going on in the Philippian church. We can't say with any degree of certainty what was happening that would warrant this kind of an appeal from Paul. You know, it, it's, been, it's been said that reading Paul's letters uh, are, are sometimes like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. And I'm sure we've all been there, right? Maybe you're in a room, your spouse or someone you know is on the phone, and you're hearing this one side, and all of a sudden you're having these strange looks, and you're, you know, maybe you're mouthing something to the person. You know, are you? What do you say? And you're trying to figure out this conversation to, to you that sounds a little odd because you're getting one side of this conversation. That's, it's been likened that that's what Paul's letters are like. We, we know what Paul is, re, we, we, Paul is responding to something, but we don't know the specifics of why he's making this appeal for unity. And so we may not know what exactly is going on, but we do know what Paul's instruction is to call to Humility. A humility that is expressed with a sincere focus for others. And so there's a sense that Paul is saying this that when a diverse church learns to walk together in others focused unity, when we learn to stand together and to strive together through the hills and valleys, the gospel of Jesus looks big. And that, my friends, is a calling that we we need to embrace today. So all of this leads us then to our, to our scripture passage for today. As we pick up from where we left off before Christmas. And it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And as we read this passage, we need to read this passage in the context of, of this call towards self-sacrificing unity and humility We need to read this in the context of Paul pushing back against self-ambition and self-promotion. So let's read. As we turn to your Bible, have your Bible there. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we'll read verses 5 to 11. So Paul writes and says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who What's needed in the Philippian church is a new mindset. Paul is calling for a new way of thinking. And the unity Paul is calling for will only be realized by learning to think in a new way, by adopting a new mindset. And this new mindset will become a prevailing mindset in the Philippian church as they are shaped more and more by the Jesus story. And so where do we look to see humility worked out in life? Well, Paul's answer is, look at Jesus look to jesus where where do we as a church look to to see the kind of unity and humility that that we need to to see expressed well paul says look to jesus think deeply think often about the incarnation the life the death and the exaltation of jesus now this is this is truly one of the greatest passages in 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 the bible there is There is much here that has led and continues to lead to a lot of scholarly debate. And one of the things that is often debated is whether we are reading part of an early Christian hymn or or maybe a poem, and if you're interested to know the answer, drop by our Digging Into Doctrine class, and Phil Shad will have all the answers for you. You're welcome, Phil, for that, uh, that help. I'm sure you'll have a fun time next Sunday morning. This, this does appear to be one of the earliest statements we have of a Christian view of Jesus. And this poem, if, if you will, is the foundational vision for self-sacrificing unity. And the weight of this poem is in the decision of Jesus, the one who was all along equal with God to become human. And so the force of this poem is in the decision of Jesus, who was with God from the beginning, equal with God, his decision to travel the long road of obedience towards the saving plan of God the Father, which led to his death on a cross. And so we're dealing with such profound truths here. We're dealing with such profound truths that despite their mystery should inspire in us a great sense of worship and adoration. And so in calling the Philippians to unity and mutual love, Paul points to the most humble person who has ever lived, Jesus And so, how is this for a paradigm of self-sacrificing humility? Jesus, who is God, became a man. Creator entered creation. Timeless, eternal enters time. Omnipresent everywhere enters into a place. Seated on a throne... Born in a manger, surrounded by angels in glory, comes to be disrespected and mocked and and abused by sinners. And living in heaven comes to live in poverty on the earth and to suffer as the man of sorrows. And so Paul says to the Philippians if you are to be marked by self sacrificing unity, you need to absorb. The Jesus story. You need to think about Jesus. The most humble. Most humble person. Who has ever lived. Look at verses 6 and 7. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man. Peter Peter O'Brien suggests that the word translated here, form, refers to that form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlines it. And so Paul is using this term to explain that Jesus truly and fully expresses the essence of God and then the essence of a servant. Uh, Listen to Stephen Wellham who writes, The pre-incarnation person of Christ has always existed as the full expression of what it means to be God. And this same divine person became incarnate so that Jesus now also exists as the full expression of what it means to be a man-servant. Now, a great challenge of this passage is how Paul describes... (laughs) the movement between these two forms as Jesus emptying himself. Now, I mean, what what does that mean? Well, I think we need to think about this movement not as a matter of subtraction or transformation, but a matter of addition, that Jesus added humanity. He didn't surrender deity. And so Paul says that Jesus, Jesus emptied himself by taking on and by being born. That's, that's how he emptied himself. By taking on and by being born. And so Jesus did not cease to be God when he became a man, but Jesus set aside his rights. He did not allow his rights, his own interests as God to dominate his actions. And so self-sacrificing humility is pictured in the entrance of Jesus into the world, that Jesus the Christ who had all of the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, gave them up to become an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. That his love drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of humanity, the ultimate expression of self-giving love. Donald McLeod provides... I think a very well-written portrait of Jesus' incarnate obedience. Listen, listen. He says, Never once did he, in his own interest or in his own defense, break beyond the parameters of humanity. He had no place to lay his head, but he never built himself a house. He was thirsty, but he provided for himself no drink. He was assaulted by all the powers of hell, but he did not call on his legions of angels. Even when he saw the full cost of self-emptying, he asked for no rewriting of the script. He bore the sin in his human body, enduring the sorrow in his human soul, and redeemed the church with his human blood. The power which carried the world, stilled the tempest, and raised the dead was never used to make his own conditions of service easier. And neither was the prestige he enjoyed in heaven exploited to relax the rules of engagement. Deploying no resources beyond those of his spirit filled humanness, he faced the foe as flesh and triumphed as man. What a savior! What, what a savior. The greatest display of humility that the world has ever witnessed was the incarnation of Christ, which led ultimately to his crucifixion. And here, Jesus demonstrated what it looks like to be humble, to push back against selfish ambition, and self-promotion. I mean, he himself declared that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, from a sovereign to a servant. This was the lowly role that Jesus assumed. Jesus laid aside his prerogatives as God in order to take on the limitations of humanity. And look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's humility follows the spiritual principle that whoever humbles himself will be exalted and the humility of Jesus leads to his exalted position as Lord that that every knee will bow there is no knee in the universe that is excluded again Stephen Willem writes that God exalts Christ back to his God equal glory on the basis of and in response to the son's incarnational obedience and so it's true that as we gather here today we worship a risen and an exalted lord and and we also realize that if we humble ourselves we will be exalted if, if we if we will humble ourselves ephesians reminds us of the great spiritual blessings that are ours through Christ by humbling ourselves before Christ the ephesians says that we are we are adopted and we are we are forgiven and we are given an inheritance why because we humble ourselves we we bow before Jesus and we confess him to be our own personal lord and savior Amen. so What's the point? That's a good question, I'm glad you asked. I, I I I think I think this is a I think this is a fitting passage for us today. I think it's a fitting passage in these early weeks of a new year, a new decade. I think it's also a fitting passage for this induction service. As we, as we mark the beginning of a new ministry. And, I, and I, there's also a, a sense in which we're entering a, a new season as a church. I know for me personally, this is definitely a brand new season in my own life and, and ministry and for the life of our family. And you know, as, as you get older, I'm, I'm 45 years old, I think. Forty-five, right? Yes. I've got a birthday coming up in July. Uh, you know, I, I think as you get older, you you get a lot more reflective. But you you, you, you not only really think about the past, but you look ahead and you start thinking like, man, I want to make these remaining years count. And 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 you and you really want to invest your. Your, your life and your energy into really things that are going to matter, and you, you look back and you, you, you look upon all of, of the life lessons and the mistakes and the things you did wrong and all of the experiences and, you, and, and some of the things you did right, and you want to bring these things into this, what for me looks like is going to be now that the, the second half of this ministry. I'm on the Freedom 75 plan, by the way. So you, you bring all of these things and you think about, you think about the future. And so I, I think this is, as, as I have been reflecting upon this passage over the last couple of weeks, there are, there are two points of application that I think are significant for us at this moment. Firstly, this text speaks profoundly about how we need to treat each other as a church, as a, as a community community. Of people as a community of grace. This text speaks in this next season about the kind of culture that needs to be cultivated. Humility is a defining mark of a gospel church. And humility is not flashy, it doesn't often grab headlines, but in the long run, it fosters unity and gospel growth. And I just get the sense that God is reminding us and reminding me that the local church should be marked by an others-focused, self-sacrificing humility. And this kind of humility can only be realized as we take on a new mindset, a mindset that is rooted in the Jesus story. And so what we're being called to do is to absorb the Jesus story. To absorb the Jesus story in such a way that it radically impacts the culture of our church. Self-sacrificing unity will only be realized with Jesus at the center, with Jesus as the object of our worship, of our hopes and obedience. We're being called to measure things by the standard of Christ. How, how would the story of churches be different if we emptied ourselves and gave up rights in the name of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel? Someone wrote this, that submission as portrayed in Philippians is not the consequence of oppression or coercion, but rather it is freely offered and reflects the self-giving character of God in the salvation events. And furthermore, as recipients of that grace, believers are exhorted to demonstrate a related self-emptying mindset in their mutual relations that regardless of the context of social order or gender and status, every believer is called to treat the other as a superior as Christ submitted to God. Friends, we must strive... (laughs) for unity we must strive for unity amid our diversity and for us to walk in unity amid the great diversity that exists in our church and this truly is a church of a great amount of diversity in, in many many different respects everyone must focus; must be focused on something other than themselves And that something or someone is Jesus and the good news of his saving gospel. We must bring our thinking into line with the gospel. We need to absorb the story of Jesus in such a way that the Jesus story becomes the shaping force in our lives, in our relationships, yes, in our church. The Jesus story must shape our boardroom and our committees and our staff and our decision making. The story of Jesus, we have to absorb it so that that culture invades every aspect of our church. The story of Jesus should help form how we treat each other within the church, how we consider the needs of others, how we treat people who are different from us, who who come from different cultures and different backgrounds, how we treat people who may struggle uh, in different ways than us, who differently th- than us who come with different opinions how is the Jesus story going to shape how we treat each other and so we need to absorb the story because it is our union with Christ that is the grounds of character change looking at my watch but it really doesn't mean anything does it just before we go on to the last point you know um, for all of my life, I've had the privilege of pastoring in established churches, like this established, multi generational churches. And I would I would suggest that established churches need new voices. They really do established churches need new new voices and i would suggest that the people who have been here a long time need the humility to be open to what new voices are saying now on the flip side new voices when they come into an established church they also need to be impacted by the jesus story and recognize that the people who have been here a long time who have a really vested interest in in a local church and have been through it through good times and bad, that they have a lot of wisdom and understanding to impart to those new voices that has come through experience and just being here. But in both regards, friends, we both need to consider the other and in humility consider each other. The second application is that this text should help shape our engagement in society at large. And this will end on this point. Francis Schaeffer said that the world cares little for our doctrine. And one thing will confirm the truth of our message to a world that has disavowed the very idea of truth and that's the love that true Christians show for each other and not just for their own kind. Absorbing the Jesus story should also shape how we relate to our world, how we engage with our city and our neighborhoods and people. It should shape our evangelism and and mission efforts. There's a sense in which the work at Philippi was a new beginning for the gospel. It's been noted that this was the first church in Europe, for example. Uh, N.T. Wright also notes how the move to Philippi marked a move away from cities with a sizable Jewish population and to cities that were essentially pagan in both religion and culture. And so in this new beginning for the gospel in Philippi, there was a need for the people of God to take on a mindset shaped by the Jesus story by this self-sacrificing mentality we too in our Canadian context struggle with life and ministry in a culture that in many respects has no memory of the gospel and while we tend to default to Grasping and fighting and striving for rights and political power. The Jesus story teaches us to embrace a different posture. The Jesus story, the the greatest example of self-sacrificing humility, teaches us, I think, to shift from a focus on rights and privileges to humble sacrificial service and love from worldly success to service from owning culture to serving it and the way we serve it is with broken-hearted joy and long-suffering mercy and kindness now, friends, there's no doubt that as, that as people who have been transformed by the grace of God, there should be much in our world that absolutely grieves us. There's no doubt. If you have been transformed by the grace of God, your heart indeed should be deeply grieved and broken by what we see in our society. But the way of Jesus teaches us that we will not win our neighbors or influence society through domination and protests, but we must take a different posture. It's the posture of humility and service. We must be a people of difference and spiritual depth and humility. And there is no doubt that we must hold firm to gospel values. We must hold firm to the scandal of, of the exclusivity of Jesus. But we must do so with bold humility. I would also say that the example of Jesus should, should also shape how we are our, our vision for, for, for our ministry in the future. We, we each, it, should, it should inform many of our decisions in, ne- in this next season. We, we need to be asking questions like, how can we serve this neighborhood? Many of you will know that we are in important discussions about, about our, our facilities. If, if, if we end up in a new building or if we stay in this building, whatever, whatever, however that's going to land, we should be asking how can we best serve people? How can we best serve this neighborhood? How can we best serve the people who, who live in the area where we are? That's the question. We're, 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 we shouldn't be interested in building or rebuilding a facility for us. Jesus is teaching us to consider the other. To consider the other. Jeff reminds us of some of the things that we're doing as a church to try to consider the other. And and, and so what we see in Jesus is a God who abandons his rights for the sake of the world. And at the heart of Paul's call in our text is a new mindset that results from absorbing the story of Jesus. And so that's the question I leave with you today. Are you being shaped by the Jesus story? Is is that the shaping force in your life? Or or, or maybe you say, I think there are other... Cultural forces. I think the, the, the story of the culture is, is more shaping my life right now. Are, are you being shaped? Is Jesus the central person? Are you, are you standing in awe of the story? I, I would suggest to us that um, you know, much of our behavior is not premeditated. That most of our thoughts and attitudes and actions are, are spontaneous. And they're, they're the spillover from what's inside. And so the great challenge of our text is the renewing of our mind. It's absorbing the story of Jesus so that it is the dominant shaping force in our lives as individuals and as a church. Can we say amen to that?